You're about to hear my conversation with James Morrison, the lead portfolio manager of Ivy Canadian. We recorded the conversation on October 5th, and we talked all about how James got into the business, how he thinks about approaching Canada using the Ivy style, and what clients can expect from his portfolio. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKinsey Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be here with James Morrison. James leads the Ivy Canadian Fund. James, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. Happy to be here. Uh, I thought we'd start today's conversation with a little bit of your backstory uh, to get to know you just a little bit better. Uh, where did you grow up and how did you spend your childhood? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I had the good fortune of growing up in the, the heart of the Rocky Mountains in a, a small town called Banff, Alberta. And uh, yeah, it was a very inspiring town to grow up in. People were um, very active, lots of great athletes uh, and Olympians and uh, so if you were into sports like I was, uh, then there, and it didn't really matter what sport, there was always someone, um, some local legend that you could look to for, for inspiration and, um, and look to try to sort of emulate. So, um, you know, that really shaped me, I think, as a person, uh, gave me lots of opportunities to sort of imagine myself in, in their shoes. And I was always in, in some one sport or another, but, um, right. When my parents, I guess my parents signed me up for ski racing at some point, I think I was about 12 and you know, I was a little late to the party, but uh, I think I surprised everyone. I actually won the first race. So um, at that point I was completely hooked and I, I committed right. into that and um, you know, I had some success, but um, as I progressed to, to the higher levels with competition getting harder, certain people really started to stand out. And, um, you know, aside from having some limited success, I think the more important thing that I took out of the whole thing was that, you know, there's, there's no matter how good you think you are. Um, and I, I emphasize the word think, uh, sure. there's always somebody out there who is, you know, bigger, faster, stronger, smarter, uh, but that shouldn't dissuade you from, from trying to win. And if you, if you, you know, put your back into it, you can still unseat some of these people, you know, if they take their, their eye off the ball. So, you know, I think growing up in Banff, that really, uh, that mindset really permeated into, into my character in a formative uh, phase of my life. And it's, you know, as you know, this is a very competitive world and especially this business. And so a lot of the skills that you, you pick up in sport, I think are, are very transferable into, you know, where we're sitting today. I've always associated Banff with more of a relaxed lifestyle than, you know, throwing yourself down a giant mountain at top speeds. But I guess there's two different types of uh, people and <laughs> people in Banff. Uh, I'm curious. That wasn't my got... experience. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, I've just been there on vacation, mind you. So maybe that's the difference. Um, so you, you had this uh, background uh, on ski racing and sport. Uh, certainly, it's something that when you think of uh, investors across the world, there there seems to be um, an, uh, a lot of alignment with sport and investing. I've heard that uh, several times. I'm curious how you got started in the business. Uh, what, what was your early career like? And eventually, how did you make your way to McKinsey? So I started my career in investment banking, which was a great place to start. Uh, you know, it was high pressure, fast pace, uh, right. very demanding. Um, so in, in the early days, I, I worked 
really hard and um, you know everybody learned a lot. Um, so I was covering a bunch of different industries and um, I really started to gravitate towards renewable energy, which was at the time an emerging technology. Um, mm. And um, in fact, you know, sometimes when we're driving up to the ski hill these days, uh, I drive past this wind farm and I always point out to my kids that uh, their dad, you know, helped raise the equity for that, that wind farm. And so I played That's a little part good. in sort of making the world a better place. But um, yeah, after, after banking, I transitioned over to uh, equity research, was, which was really just a, a walk across the, the, the hallway. Um, and I was really fortunate to have, you know, a really great mentor named Mac Murray Whale. Um, and Mac was a, uh, he had a PhD from MIT in photovoltaics. So he was a, a achiever. Yeah, super <laughs> smart guy, right? And, um, but before he entered capital markets, he was also a professor at the University of Calgary. So, mm. you know, I sort of hit the jackpot in between, um, you know, really smart guy, but a great teacher. And yeah, he was a great mentor and today he's a good friend, but at the time he was, he was pivotal in, in sort of giving me a shot at becoming a publishing analyst. And that gave me, I think, the skills uh, covering a number of different industries uh, to, you know, ready myself for, for portfolio management. And, um, you know, over time, I just wanted to start moving away from providing, you know, advice to the portfolio managers to, to actually putting my ideas into action. So um, one day I, I met this guy named Paul Musson, right, sure. uh, who was the head of Ivy for seemingly forever. And... I had just never heard someone talk about investing that way. He, you know, it wasn't to him, it wasn't about beating the market or beating the peers. It was, it was all about the client. And, um, you know, it, it was very inspiring. And, um, so after the meeting, I just, I just knew I wanted to work with him. And so, you know, I met the the rest of the team and, and that was a great experience too, because it was just, you know, amazing and noteworthy how, philosophically aligned. Everybody was on the team. And so I just really wanted to be a part of it. And, um, you know, it's been a great ride. That's great. And uh, when did you join, did you join the team, James? So I joined Ivy in 2014. Great. Uh, and uh, and currently you're uh, the lead manager of uh, Ivy Canadian. I think yeah. that uh, some of our listeners will know the Ivy investment style well, being a conservative uh, fund, tends to outperform during uh, down markets, underperform during those up markets. Uh, Canada strikes me as a fairly tricky uh, geography to apply that sort of conservative principle um, uh, that the Ivy style is known for. How do you think about that and how do you do that within a uh, market like Canada's? You know, it's a question that, that comes up periodically. And, um, you know, I like to point out, and I find that people are, are surprised to find out that um, if you, you know, the, the, if you if you actually extract the impact of resources from the TSX, that the TSX has provided comparable returns over time to world indices, and it's done so mm -hmm. with lower levels of volatility. Um, so for from my perspective, that's a great hunting ground for Ivy, um, which is searching for high quality, low volatility um, and low dispersions of, of outcomes. And, um, you know, one of the, the reasons why we think that that dynamic exists here in Canada is is oligopolies. You know, Canada is is really home to uh, a disproportionate number of 
oligopoly-like industries or or high market share uh, businesses. Right. Um, and you know, there's there's lots of different reasons uh, for that, but you don't have to look too far for you know examples. Um, you know, just look at the Canadian banks. Uh, these are really well-run franchises. And they generate a very attractive returns on capital. And you go outside of Canada and you compare that to what's going on with like the thousands of regional banks in the US sure. where they're duking it out for you know slivers of share and, and that incents some very competitive and um, challenging um, behaviors. Or you know you focus on on Europe where the regulatory environment is very punitive from a profitability perspective, and then you know come back to Canada, and there's effectively five very responsible players. They're acting in a very rational, um, competitive way, and they get to um, you know put their business plans into action with a very um, rational regulator. I mean I think when we look at OSFI, uh, who regulates the banks. You know, they seem to have a view that it's okay to be profitable, right? And right. that's actually component of like that actually adds to the stability of the financial system because these companies have a buffer that they can absorb more sure. challenging times. So, you know, there's 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 a lot more examples um, I think like that across the Canadian industry, and some of them are just you know not really oligopolies, but. Canada can be a bit of a forgotten market, and yeah. that has given a lot of businesses the opportunity to build a first mover advantage that can dissuade, uh, you know, other players from coming in. That's that's great. Maybe I'll, I'll um, broaden the question a little bit when you're talking about uh, the oligopic uh, industries. Sounds like that's a, an interesting hunting ground. Um, beyond that, so so there's there's some market structural um, uh, interest uh, in that particular segment of the market. How else do you find companies? Uh, so uh, what is it that you look for? So I mean, at a high principle level, we're we're investing in high quality businesses with strong management teams where we think that the the businesses can adapt um, to unforeseen and challenging circumstances. Um, sometimes we find um, opportunities that have kind of similar themes though. And, um, you know, one of them would be execution risk. So, you know, we spend a lot of our time uh, when we're doing our due diligence, uh, not just on the kind of the quantitative side, but on the qualitative side. Um, getting to know management teams, what makes them tick, and, and how their corporate cultures are ingrained. And um, so once in a while, you'll find a company where um, some form of execution risk is, is weighing on the stock. And you know, if you know the, the management team well and you have confidence in their ability to execute, then that can be an opportunity to, um, to bet on management. Right. And uh, you know, that's something that, that we like to do. Um, you know, a good example of that uh, recently was Intact Insurance. Um, you know, this is a dominant PNC insurer in Canada, right. and uh, they recently acquired a company called RSA, which broadened their footprint uh, into the United Kingdom, which is a bit of a problematic uh, insurance market. But um, so that gave the market sort of cause for pause, and um, the Intact became one of the very few uh, high-quality businesses that wasn't trading. Uh, that way. Um, and so, you know, we took a look at it and um, our view was that this is one of the most capable management teams in the country. Uh, they have a, a long track record of, um, you know, acquiring and integrating. And we've seen this movie before. Um, they did this when they moved into the U.S. with their acquisition of One Beacon. And so, 
you know, it wasn't uncharted territory for them. Um, they're very capable and that's sort of, uh, it's a very high quality business, which can skate you on side if, if you're wrong. Sure. And um, so that was something that we were willing to make a, a move on. And, and it's been a really strong contributor to our performance for the year. You know, another uh, area that you'll often find opportunities for us is, is you can call it time arbitrage, but um, you know, we like to think long-term. And so, you know, quite often you'll find that uh, there's a near-term headwind or tailwind that's disproportionately weighing on on a stock or impacting it. And, um, you know, if we take the view that the long-term prospects haven't changed and you have this near-term um, thing that's impacting that uh, the the trading of the, the shares, then that gives us an opportunity to take the opposite side of the trade in sort of a low-risk contrarian way. James, during that answer, you referenced corporate culture. And if there's one thing that I, I sort of heard Paul Musson uh, talk about, corporate culture seems like it's a very important ingredient to the IV uh, process, not just looking for businesses, but of course, your internal corporate culture. I'm wondering, you referenced the oligarchic nature of the Canadian landscape. And to me, it, there might be some tension there. When I think of monopolies or oligarchies, I think of sort of lazy corporate culture, lazy um, uh, initiatives, that type of thing. Is that something that you struggle with in the Canadian space or, or not really? It's an interesting question. Um, you know, I think by design, we're always looking for um, high quality businesses and we're not limited to investing in the Canadian um, market, right? Uh, right. You know, I'm managing a, a Canadian focused equity fund. So at least half has to be in Canada, but we can always sort of leverage our significant horsepower with the IV foreign team to, to broaden out our global uh, exposure. So, um, we don't tend to be looking at uh, some of those companies that tend to sit on their laurels, um, or if we do, then you know we move past them fairly quickly. Sure. Um, so yeah, what I would th say is that the companies that we're investing in certainly don't uh, exhibit that behavior. These are companies that are um, very long-term thinking and constantly reinvesting in their edge, and they're terrified that if they don't, someone is going to unseat them. So there's no... There's always a sense of urgency to continue to move forward, even if you've got the sort of leading position. Wonderful. Um, I think we should talk a little bit about energy as well, it being such a significant part of the Canadian market. And of course, it being very volatile and uh, the main input uh, being the price of oil, uh, notoriously difficult to predict. So how do you think about uh, incorporating energy within your portfolio? Yeah, so, you know, I guess if take a step back and try to think about what we're trying to achieve for you know our clients, um, and you know when we think about what our objective is, we're trying to help our clients achieve their long-term financial goals, and we see that as sort of a, a, a dual mandate in that it's not only about providing them with good long-term performance, um, we also uh, you know, need to provide them with a path that allows them to to stay invested and, and sort of realize the returns of the fund. And so, you know, that's where downside protection um, comes in to to the fray. And um, you know, our view is that if we can provide a smoother path uh, to returns, um, then you know we can help our clients from getting whipsawed out of the market at the worst possible time, and, and they can continue to move forward towards their um, goals, whatever they may be. So I think you can appreciate how the volatility of of, of energy um, could be viewed as a negative for sure. for us. 
Um, and so, you know, we have a cautious approach to the sector. Um, with that said, we do invest in energy and primarily through pipelines. So, you know, when we think about pipelines, um, you know, the things that are attractive to us are these are, you know, long duration assets with contracted cash flows that are inflation linked. Um, they have very low counterparty risk. Um, and, you know, these things tend to, to have fairly high payout ratios, right, or fairly high yields. Um, so we look at them as uh, pretty defensive businesses, and historically they, they have been. Um, so, you know, when we look at that component of the energy sector, we think mid-single digit, 5 or 6% dividend yield, that's a pretty compelling uh, return for a defensive uh, business. Then when you sort of go into the producer uh, in arena, then we need to be much more cautious. Right. And um, like you said, uh, the primary driver is, is deeply cyclical and out of their control. So, you know, you need to pick your spots. And um, so we do this, we, we sort of play in this sector on the margin. Um, and when you see us uh, investing in an energy producer, what you're going to see is it's going to be, again, long duration. It's going to be low cost of production so that it can you know, always keep the taps on. Um, and it's going to have a really strong balance sheet. So right. you know, those are sort of our, our criteria. And we own Suncor, which you know, I think ticks all of those boxes. It's got a 50-year asset. Its, its cost of production is $20. And you know, its, its balance sheet has never been stronger. Fair enough. Um, Suncor uh, is a stock uh, like some, uh, but not that many, that have benefited, uh, say, in the year-to-date uh, piece with uh, the crisis in Ukraine, increasing commodity prices. Uh, the big stories this year have been uh, clearly inflation uh, and the interest rate sp response to inflation. How do you incorporate things like that when you're viewing uh, your portfolio? Well, you know, I think um, for starters, we're not economists. Um, we're not trying to set the portfolio up for any particular, you know, macro uh, overlay. Uh, so we really start uh, from a bottom-up perspective of, like, if we don't know what's going to happen in the future, then the best protection that we can um, seek is to to go in and put together a diversified portfolio of high-quality businesses that we believe that will be able to adapt to um, unforeseen and challenging circumstances. But I mean. Going the, the high quality is really the big one um, there. When you think about inflation, um, high quality businesses tend to come with pricing power. And that's not true for every company that we own. But when you aggregate it up to the portfolio level, generally true. And so they're better positioned than most to, um, to pass on on their cost inflation in, in their price. So, you know, I think in general, when you get some form of macro disruption, our, our quality companies are, are generally well positioned to, to deal with that. Um, but then, you know, I think when we're designing the portfolio, we, um, we also want to tend to take a step back after we've done this sort of bottom up exercise and, you know, make sure that we look at how the, the risks and drivers um, sort of aggregate up at the top to make sure that there's no one thing that can sink the ship. Um, so that right. would be, you know, regions, factors, or, um, you know, or industries. 
Makes makes a lot of sense. Um, maybe my, my final question, James. Uh, recently, we were we announced the uh, retirement of Paul Musson uh, from the team. He sounds. I understand he's going to be around as a consultant for a number of uh, years. Uh, Matt Moody's replacing him. What impact do you expect that to have to you? And is there anything that you're expecting to sort of change within the portfolio? So you know the the short answer is um, you know I wouldn't expect. Uh, any visible changes from the outside looking in. Uh, you know, from the day that I joined, Paul has been um, talking about the fact that he won't be around forever. And um, if if you can say one thing about Paul is he's a long-term thinker. So he's been planning his sure. succession for a long time. And um, yeah, so he's he's been very hands-off. And I think he always viewed his job as um, sort of the chief cultural officer. And, you know, the primary responsibility was making sure that he went out and got the right people in place. And eventually, you know, as he sort of watched and we gained his trust, um, more of the decision-making was was handed down and to the point that all of the decision-making has been made by the, um, the people who are in the seats today. So um, I think it's a seamless transition. Um, you know, Matt, Moody has been with Ivy for 17 years. So, you know, he, he carries with him that institutional memory um, that can be really important to pass on to the next generation. And uh, I think everybody is, you know, really philosophically aligned. I think we all come into work every day with a sense of purpose. Um, so he's managed to, um, to indoctrinate us all into, you know, thinking about the client and, and making sure that we're um, 100% committed to making sure that the client gets to the end goal. James, thanks so much for spending time with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.